Welcome to the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. I'm super excited to introduce you to today's guest. She's underwent a life transformation, taking her from an average stay-at-home mom to a world-class Ironman athlete. And when I say world-class, I mean world-class. She's been to the World Championships Ironman Kona six times, came in second in that race in the 35 to 39 age group for female in 2015, was named the Ironman All-World Female 35 to 39 champion in 2013, and was Tokyo Joe's Athlete of the Month in 2014. Lately, she can be seen adventure racing and leading her group of three men on Iron Cowboy on the new competition show, World Toughest Race Eco Challenge Fiji, hosted by Bear Grylls. That premiered on Amazon Prime August 14th, 2020. So if you haven't had the chance to check that out yet, I highly, highly recommend it. You won't want to stop watching that. She's got some great airtime on that as well with some awesome interviews and behind us there. So but now she actually has a podcast of her own sharing the untold stories of the athletes that participated in the event. That's called Tales of Toughness. So definitely check that out. And if that's not all, she's also known as an ultra marathon. She's ran the Grand Canyon rim to rim in 12 hours, was named the Moab 100 mile female champion and second overall in 2010, that in men. And believe me, there are many, many more achievements that I could tell you about. But I don't want to keep you from our conversation any longer. We chat about how she's grown up fearless, health first approach to recovery, and her favorite tools for recovery, and much, much more. So go find her on Instagram, tag her while you're listening to this episode. You can find her at GoSonya, G-O- S-O-N-J-A. All right, let's get into it. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Each week, we explore how to recover more efficiently from training so you can work out harder and realize your full potential. This is the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Hey, Sonia, it's uh, great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Jace. I'm so stoked that you asked me to come on. I'm excited to be here. I'm honored. I'm thankful. So thanks for having me. Well, that's um, quite the range of emotions. So I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited to talk to somebody that I watched for 10 episodes on a a season that, um, and honestly, I had to borrow somebody else's Amazon Prime because I don't have it, but... (laughs) I was like, I need to see this show. So, um, but I wanted to start off this conversation kind of taking you back to pre-athletics for you. In your in your podcast that you have, Tales of Toughness, you talk about that you got into running because you were afraid of balls, <laughs> and I uh, just kind of <laughs> loved the freedom that it got got to you. But what? made you like go out on that first run? I mean, it's not something that's oh my intuitive gosh. to yeah. somebody just, I'm going to go run. <laughs> I know it's, um, gosh, yes. You know, I think since I've been little, 
what's always got me, what's always been in my blood and in my DNA is adventure. Um, I remember even being like a little kid and we had property and I was always adventuring around the property and climbing all the trees and I had a dog in tow. And so there was this sense of exploration that's always been deep inside of my little heart. And I remember in middle school starting to run the mile and seeing that I was the fastest girl in the school and kind of getting a little bit of like, I'm the fastest girl in the school (laughs) attitude about it. And then I remember one day thinking, you know what, I'm going to, I think runners train, like they go and they run. And I took off from my house and I ran and I ran and I ran. And I think later I went and had my mom drive it and I had run six miles all around the neighborhood. But all I remember was, A, I was really tired. That was exhausting. But I got so far from home because you get like three miles from home when you're in middle school and you think you're on another planet. And that sense of having like my own two little feet get me that far from home and then being able to run all the way back and have this sense of, oh my gosh, I just did this like mini adventure that lit up something inside me. So I, I think I always realized what running could do for me from an adventure point of view, less from a, you know, I could be really fast at something short yeah. distance or which I did have to do in high school. Um, but yeah, the exploration, the getting out with other people and trying to go get in a little bit of trouble yeah. during cross country practice. Like that was really big for me in high school. I loved our adventure runs. I didn't like our track workouts as much as I loved, you know, us going out and getting lost yeah. a little bit. That's so am I hearing this right? That your first like actual training run that you're like, I'm just going to go on a run with six miles in middle school. <laughs> I was in, in seventh grade. <laughs> That explains yes. a lot. <laughs> I just kept running. And I remember, I remember sort of like every turn I would make and road I would run down thinking like, should I turn around? Like I'm really far yeah. from home. And then I'd be like one more road. Cause I still knew where I was. I'm like, I still know where I am. I still know I can get myself yeah. home. So I'm going to do like one more road. And yeah. Then when my mom got home from work, I was like, we need to go drive my run so we could like hit the yeah. odometer and see how far I went. My mom, we just kept driving. My mom's like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's awesome. Did your mom like think you were crazy at that point or you know i remember her being like definitely not negative she never put that fear in me of like you went so far you know which we often do with women uh we default to this kind of like safety measure safety place and my mom never did that with me she always applauded my exploration and my enthusiasm um so i remember her just being really positive about it but she would ride her bike with me through high school when i would go on my long runs and she always billed it as like oh i need some exercise too so she'd come and ride next to me but i know probably in her heart now that i'm a mother i know she was like oh i'm gonna go ride my bike with her (laughs) you can run a long ways i'm gonna (laughs) make sure you come home yeah i better accompany you (laughs) but i never I never got this. I never got the kind of normal female fear programming. I don't think compared to a lot of yeah. other women, I still feel very safe going out into the back country alone. Yeah. I feel safe uh, training and exercising alone on my bike, swimming. I swim open water alone um, in the bay. You know, so I, I've never kind of had that fear, that female yeah. fear tactic that I know a lot of women have to to fight and accommodate for. Um. Did you grow up in a small town, large town, or or what kind? Yeah, 
I grew up in the town that I'm actually living in okay. now. So from age 10 to 15, I lived in this little beach town called Los Osos, California, on the coast, kind of halfway okay. between San Francisco and LA, um, maybe like two hours north of Santa Barbara okay. and a, like three hours south of Monterey. So it's just kind of tucked in very quiet. There's 14,000 people okay. in this town. There were 14,000 people when I was 10 and there's 14,000 <laughs> people now that yeah. I'm 40. It hasn't a, changed. A lot of a tourists lick. or not really? No, um, most of the tourists are in Morro Bay okay. or they're in Paso Robles drinking wine, but very few tourists like find their way to Los Osos. So we have just this quiet little hamlet here yeah. with a lot of families and it's safe, but we've got a big state park next to us and we've got the water. Yeah. We live kind of at the base of this big Morro Bay, this yeah. back bay. Um, so we have, we have water, we have a big old sand spit that you can go explore in this big state yeah. park. And it's just a beautiful location to raise a family. It's a beautiful location to grow up. And it's why so many people have trouble leaving here and you end up really house poor because the real estate's really expensive, but there's not a lot yeah. of jobs to support, you know, those income levels. So we have a lot of retirees that are moving in um, and a lot of young families. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting dynamic right now, but I love being in a place where I can head out the front door and literally within a mile and a half, I'm in the country, I'm running up a, yeah. a mountain and I'm on single track trail and there's a huge ocean view next to me. I think where you live and as an endurance athlete, your surroundings are so much a part of your daily life yeah. that where you live really, really matters. hundred percent. I think, you know, coming from a small town myself that you talked about, like you didn't get that fear tactic, like a lot of women, I think that comes from, you know, the environment that you're growing up to. And it seems that you were growing up in kind of this very uh, safe, albeit maybe a little bit naive on your part at that time. But overall, you know, you didn't hear about the stories of somebody getting shot down the street or, or what have you. Um, and I'm sure so that true. helped you become that kind of adventure that, you know, that you are now, because if you didn't start yeah, I, I there, think you're spot on. Um, that would be hard to develop when you're going overnights in the jungle and uh, climbing up and down waterfalls. I mean, I, I would imagine you have to have some sort of nerve to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I think that is a definite piece of it. Um, when I was 15, we moved to San Jose, a big city in the Bay Area. And I remember there being a culture shock for me there. And I remember kind of internalizing that sensation of, oh, I'm not in my safe community. Yeah. And one of the things my mom and I always laughed about was, you know, back in Los Osos, if all the cops, if all the cops came blaring down the street, you just had to go turn on the news and you could find out what was yeah. going on. And then we'd move to San Jose and we'd see all these cops and all this like hullabaloo yeah. and we'd go turn on the news and it would never even be reported yeah. on. You know, there's so much crime happening, not that it was even a high crime area, but just in a big city, lots of crime happens that doesn't make the news. But in our yeah. little town, you know, we would know what was going on all the time. And I remember that being like, oh, I'm not in a in a small town yeah. anymore. And there's a lot more police presence. And also um when you're out in the backcountry, who you run into makes a big difference. Sure. I think as a woman is you're constantly looking, okay, who am I running into? Is that is it a nice friendly couple with a dog? Is it 
a solo man and sort of the dynamic of who you start running into definitely varies when you're in a bigger city. You start running into people that seem more unfamiliar yeah. and you kind of question a little bit more. And that's just natural when you have a bigger community yeah. of people using outdoor space. Yeah. And um, also I think has contributed to, you know, how uh, marginalized communities don't always feel safe out in the backcountry mm. either because they're they're not seeing people that are like them yeah. out there very often. And I can understand that as a woman and, and just changing sort of cultural areas. And yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got to, we have some work to do, but yeah, I think that that small town feel did help me explore a lot more safely as a woman. And I'm sure most of the people around town recognized me or knew who I was when I was out trying to get yeah. into trouble anyway. <laughs> that runner girl again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where is she headed? <laughs> uh, so San Jose, is that where you went to college then? Uh that's where I went and finished out high okay. school just for a year and three quarters. And then I went to UC San Diego okay. for college and I tried to run there, their D2 yep. school, D2 non-scholarship. And, um, I made it, I made it through my freshman year and I did not thrive at all in the college running environment. I, I like to party and <laughs> I stayed up yeah. really late. I had enough trouble making it to my classes. And then I had suddenly we we're going from like a high school running environment, which was really nurturing. And I always had really fantastic high yeah. school coaches went to a college program. There's a lot more responsibility. There's double days. You got to be in sure. the gym, you know, doing your strength training. And I was like, what is all of this? <laughs> I didn't really thrive in that yeah. environment. It was a lot, a lot of structure and rigidity, which I've never thrived in that mm -hmm. sort of environment. And so sophomore year, I tried, you know, continued to try to be a runner, but I was getting, I was worse than I was mm -hmm. in high school in college. My times were worse. My training was worse. My happiness was definitely yeah. worse. And so, you know, most of the way through track season, my sophomore year, I knew like, this is it. I'm not going to be doing this mm -hmm. anymore. And I was getting more adventurous. I was doing some backpacking and I had gotten into rock climbing a little okay. bit. And so I knew there was like another place for me that I could go. I could get back to that sense of yeah. adventure and I could drop the whole rigidity of yeah. that formal collegiate running program. And that was definitely the right move for me. Like all the people who I ran with in college, only one of them still runs, yeah. you know, because they got so burned yeah. out. But, um, the two of us that still run weren't very great in college. And now we do a lot of adventure. So I think kind of shutting, yeah. shutting down college is what enabled me to find sport again later in life and really like love it and adopt it and double down on yeah. it. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You brought that up. Like the better athletes aren't running now. I, I totally experienced that. Um, you know, we were talking just before this and I had, 12 years of 12 years of running like for a time, you know, fast. And yep. Yep. I, I got good, but man, was I burnt out afterwards, you know, it took me a year right. to like, Oh, now I like training again, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wonder yep. for you, it seems like your passion kind of lies into the maybe not so structured, like, you know, training or time chasing, but more of like, let's see what the body can do as far as endurance <laughs> goes. Is that like what you found? I think, I think I got there eventually, but I took the okay. long way. <laughs> I mean, being sort of a college dropout runner always left a chip on sure. my shoulder. 
that failure to thrive. Um, cause I loved yeah. running in high school. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the racing and, and then getting to college and really failing to thrive and kind of almost disappearing into the woods and into the outdoors as something that just took all the pressure off because I wasn't succeeding, you know, and it, and at what point was I just banging my head against the wall? And it was kind of like, well, I can just go out and have, I can just go have fun instead of banging my head against the wall. But I always still had that chip on my shoulder of like, yeah, I didn't make it. I didn't cut it. I didn't, I didn't thrive, you know? And, and that was hard on my, my ego to be honest. And, um, and so I ended up taking a break from sport and, um, I finished out college. I went to graduate yeah. school and met my husband, got married, had my daughter, and I was largely not active. Yeah. I would hike and sometimes backpack and climb 14ers. Yeah. So it was like outdoorsy, yeah. but nothing structured, no racing or anything. And uh, slowly through that process, sort of lost myself. Definitely having my daughter, I lost, I gained a lot of weight and just kind of got farther and farther away from definitely someone who ran in, in college, but also even the adventurous like seeker that I was. Um, so when I finally had my sort of coming to moment where I realized, oh my gosh, like you are on a trajectory that is so far off of who you self-identify as you need to find that girl again. And I had had a baby that coming back, I launched like fully into triathlon and Ironman. Because I finally 2007. So I had Annie in 2005 in uh, November. And then about November, October of 2006 was when I was like, who are you? What are you doing? You're a mess. (laughs) And I just looked in the mirror and was like, you think you're sporty. You think you're adventurous. Where, where is she? Where'd she go? She's not looking back. And that next day I went and went down to the garage and I pulled out my husband's mountain bike and he's six foot four. (laughs) So I had to drop the seat all the way down to, I'm five foot six, but it was a bike. It was the only bike we had in the garage. And I, I couldn't run. I was too heavy to run. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't run. And so I put the, the bike, the seat down on the mountain bike and I used our REI dividend because we bought lots of things at REI. We just didn't use them. So I used our dividend to buy a trailer that I could put on for Annie. And I remember that first moment and that first ride that I took off with her in the trailer. She was about a year old. And, you know, we went and we found a bike path and we rode the bike path and we went to the park and we pushed her in the swing. And I came back to the house like an hour and a half later and I'd had this massive adventure with Annie. And I was like, oh, there's that girl. Like there she is. That's the girl. That's who I want to be. And that started to light the fire. And so from that, it just, my little addictive personality started extending the bike rides yeah. <laughs> and then got the wheels that you could pop on the, the trailer and push it. And I started yeah. like walking with her and then I started jogging and then I signed up for a 5k. And so it was like this whole after Annie was this whole reemergence of Sonia as an athlete, Sonia as an adventurer, Sonia as an explorer. But this time I had Annie in tow. Yeah. Um, and and that was that was when I really got into endurance sports. Um, yes, for the adventure, but a lot too for just that sense of self and finding. Sure. Oh my gosh, I'm good at something yeah. again. Um, so I, I want to talk to you about your identity through that process, but I would like to point out to the listeners just to make sure they caught this first bike ride that you've probably done in a long time on a bike that was way too big was 90 minutes. <laughs> 
it's like it's an adventure your first your first ever run is six miles and then your first bike ride <laughs> 90 minutes yeah uh, <laughs> incredible so um but we go to mindset because in sport you know mindset is a is a huge deal and i know it's something that you've had to develop over um your races and, and stuff and we'll talk a little bit more about this later but i want to know when you know up to 2006 when you had that realization of i'm not who i want to be did you still identify like self-talk or even telling others like yeah i'm an athlete and i i do this that or was it no. like you were negative talking to yourself and yeah i definitely it was like it was almost like a hidden identity that you were ashamed mm. that I remember feeling ashamed about. Sure. Um, like I was an imposter or I was mm. a poser during that time because I, I thought of myself as adventurous, but I remember thinking, but you aren't, you know, yeah. you, even if you told somebody that you were, that would be a lie. And so there was a bit of shame around who I used to be sure. instead of just being like, yeah, I used to be an athlete or I used to be a runner. Or, I used to be a climber. Um, I used to be a mountaineer. Yeah. It was, it was, there was so much shame around the time when I was gaining weight and trying to figure out how to be a mother um, because I wasn't doing those things. And so it, yeah, it's an interesting mindset thing of how negative we can be on ourselves um, and how quickly we can lose our yeah. identity and shame ourselves for that loss of identity. You're not a runner anymore. And I hear it from people so often, oh, I'm not a runner like you. Like, dude, we all run, yo, we're runners. Yeah. Um, but how quickly we judge, well, I haven't, you know, I haven't run in a year. I'm not a runner yeah. anymore. What is that? Like, who cares? Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it doesn't, it's not helpful, 100%. I guess. Um, but I did, I remember feeling that sense of shame that I just wasn't living up to my own expectations of myself. Yeah. And that caused a lot, caused me a lot of pain and probably hindered my ability to just double down and enjoy that time period of my life, which was pregnancy first mm. year with little baby Annie, instead of just really embracing that region, I do remember feeling like, oh, I'm just not who I used to be. And I'm, you know, ashamed of that. And I'm getting out of shape. And, yeah. you know, I, I didn't really just embrace what was, which I think I do more now than I yeah. ever have. Awesome. Um, I know, as you progress in sport, um, you get to a certain level where you are in your sport where if you would look back on yourself when you're just starting, it's like, nah, I wasn't really a runner, or I wasn't really an athlete, you know, um, it, like a, a professional basketball player. I play basketball um, on occasion once a week, but a professional basketball player wouldn't call me a basketball player, you know, but I think we do, like you said, a disservice when we start labeling, like you have to be this, this good to be in the club, you know, you have to be this good yep. to be a runner, this good to be a basketball player. Uh, for those that need sport as a healing type of, you know, process. And because I think sport can be a stress relief uh, to a lot of people, um, which kind of brings me into the next section I want to talk to you about is the overall, overall health of an athlete. And I know it's something that you really believe in, um, probably more so you you probably 
carry it out more when you're coaching somebody or, you know, being in a race with somebody else, then maybe take care of yourself. But it's this health first concept um, that I think should be taken not lightly in, in sport. And, and I don't mean health just as physical, like not getting injured, but also mental. So how, how did you kind of develop that motto of yep. health first? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. So, um, so I ended up getting into Ironman triathlon and Ironman racing, um, shortly after, you know, my adventure, Annie expeditions and, um, pretty quickly into Ironman racing, my coach at the time, who was also an advocate of health first, he was like, Sonia, you have to coach. And I was always like, no, no, I don't know enough. I don't, he goes, no, 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 no. Like you have got to coach. You're Mm -hmm. great. I'll help you with the details. If you get stuck on details, I'll help you with the details, but you need to get out there and you need to start coaching others. And so I I took on six athletes to start my very first year. And I tried to pick the six most different athletes that I could, you know, fast, developing, long distance, shorter distance, men, women, family, single, tried to just get my little guinea pigs (laughs) um, so that I could learn as quickly as possible, different dynamics. And One of the things I just remember running into so quickly was how varied people's lives are in terms of their stress. Like everybody has good weeks and bad weeks. And as a newer coach, I'm trying to develop a program and I understand that programs need to build and they need to build in very structured ways so that people stay healthy. And so, you know, there's this structure of the program that you write on the paper. And then as I applied that structured program to these very varied Mm -hmm. athletes, I started to see how everything goes wrong all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just the rare athlete who I can give them their weekly plan and they go do all their sessions and they report back to me and all is good. And then I can apply the next amount of load. It's like my kid got sick this week, or I had to work Mm. overtime, or I've got a business trip or a paper is due, or I'm on my period. You know, there were just all these crazy things. And so as I started to have these conversations with my coach at the time and, and started to ask like, how do we take in the whole athlete do, is it my job to push the rigidity? Is it my job to say, you know what, you need to clear your life. If you really are dedicated in your program, you've got, and then that just didn't sit well with me. So I took a bit of a leap of faith. And I remember thinking, what if we just accept that the right amount of training for any individual is the amount of training that can fit beautifully and seamlessly into their life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a different concept because everyone thinks we have to go big or go home. We've got to wake up early. We've yeah. got to stay up late, right? We've got to cram all these sessions in. The sessions are what mattered. And I was like, what if it's the balance that matters? And for every single athlete, that's a different yeah. balance. I've got Jen, who's a CEO and she has 90% international travel. Sometimes we train five hours a week. Jen has competed in Kona. Wow. She's, she's done Ironman World Championships. But if we can find the right balance of training stress for the athlete that fits into their already wild lives, then what I found, what happens is slowly over time, the athlete will start to change their own life. The athlete will start to pull some of the things that pulled them away from training and they'll solve Mm. those. They'll systematize or they'll create efficiencies inside their own life to have more space to fit more training in organically. So rather than trying to shove this, you know, square peg in a round hole, I took this approach of, we're going to find the right amount of training for you. 
and that right amount. And then I had to have faith that they would be able to do this very structured, fixed race distance because it was mostly Ironman people were asking me to do. And so I had athletes that were training for Ironman 20 hours a week. And I had athletes that were training for Ironman on eight hours a week, but that's what each of those athletes life could hold on to. And I just had to have faith that come race day, the eight hours a week person would still arrive uninjured with at least eight hours a week of training, the right training, and they would be healthy, happy, fired up yeah. and ready to go. And those athletes, oh, they just started finishing races. And then they started getting better at yeah. their races and they started having PRs. And I, I just sort of trusted this concept that if we prioritize health, if we prioritize their lives and their beautiful, complex, dynamic, exciting, adult functioning lives, if we really prioritize that and then we put the training inside of that, that it wouldn't fail us. Um, and that, and I had a couple, I had a couple of times where I definitely got greedy. You know, I'd see an athlete that had an exorbitant amount of potential and I would push the program a little bit more than usual. And it, it I learned very quickly, it would backfire on both of us every mm -hmm. single time and we would get sick or we would get mm -hmm. burned out or, you know, you just, we couldn't fit that amount of training inside of that yeah. athlete while maintaining all the other balls that they had in the air. So that was where we started really focusing on mental health. And I call it mojo, like where yeah. my athletes mojo was at, because when that mojo falls, we need to understand why the one interesting part of it is that you know, I believe all stress in a person's life goes into their stress bucket, but training is its own source of stress. That's why we train. We want to stress the body so that it yeah. adapts. And the thing with being an endurance athlete is that training stress is the only stress that gives you a physical adaptation for endurance yeah. sports, but life stress is still a yep. stress. So it's an interesting bucket situation where all the stress goes into the bucket, but only the training stress gives us the adaptation when it comes to Ironman marathons, yep. you name it. So we, we've got to balance that stress, but you can't, you know, you can't force a family man with four kids in a corporate job to train 20 hours yeah. a week. Even if 20 hours is going to help him win his age group at Kona, it doesn't matter. He's got to train what he can fit. And then through time, when his wife sees that he just got off the podium or just didn't qualify and she's willing to make some sacrifices and he's willing to cut down a little time at work and we're willing to put a little bit more in. All that has to happen very slowly, very organically with everybody being on full board and very excited about it. Cause that's the only way it'll go smoothly. Yeah. Uh, it, like if you push them too hard, it just becomes a chore instead of something they enjoy. It backfires every time, every single time, whenever, you know, managing the athlete's energy and mojo is by far the most important aspect of training an endurance athlete. Um, if they have the fire in their belly and it's lit and it's stoked and it's, and it's burning hot and mojos is flowing great, then they'll train fantastically with whatever hours you give them. Um, but once that fire starts to deaden, once they get stressed, once they don't know how they're going to fit all the things inside mm -hmm. as a coach, if you want your athlete to be healthy long-term, you have to chop sessions. You just got to chop, 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 chop. You got it. And the athlete won't want to do that. They don't like to see those training sessions on their schedule, get deleted or reversed or mm -hmm. adapted or whatnot. So that's really the role of the coach is to save the athlete from yeah. themselves in that predicament and to come in and be the, the wise body to say, Oh, no big deal. Actually, you know, we're going to do it this way. This is how we're going to, and there will be a sense yeah. of relief from the athlete. And when that sense of relief happens, their little fire will get a little log on it and it'll start to burn a little bit hotter. Like relief will build 
their motivation. So yeah, it's, it's that constant tweaking back and forth with an athlete to find that right special sauce amount of training that they can do day in, day out, week in, week out. Takes a lot of time, takes a lot of care and TLC, but oh, you have such happy athletes on the other end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My coach always uh, used my, I rather have you a hundred percent healthy and 80% fit than um, you know, a hundred percent fit and broken. <laughs> That's right. That is exactly it. And, and really, isn't that the metaphor for life? I mean, don't we do sport to learn how to live our lives, you know? And so these things are transferable. It's the same. We would, we would rather see our loved ones, you know, a little bit more relaxed than overwhelmed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Even if they didn't get as much done and the laundry's not done and the dishes are all dirty in the sink, we'd rather people feel happy and motivated and rejuvenated. Yeah. So there's there's a balance there and we could, that's why we train. It's why we chase podiums. It's it's why we try to do this stuff because we're supposed to be better people to the people we love mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah. And at some point if you push it too hard, you you stop becoming that. Um You do. Yeah, I want to push back a little bit on your stress all in one bucket. Um, because <laughs> sometimes uh, I, I agree that training stressful and life is stressful. And if life is stressful, then, um, you know, you can't train as hard because there, yep. there's that. But I also think there's mental stress and physical stress in one aspect where or even emotional stress, you know, where a job or a career uh, or a relationship could be mentally draining, um, emotionally draining, but then sport sometimes gives that back, but takes from the physical. So how do you balance like, okay, you're stressed, but maybe you could still push or how do you, I mean, how do you know what, what to take off and yeah, what to apply back? I know it comes in getting to know the athlete and how they're, how they're handling things. I will say in times of large amounts of relationship stress, every athlete, so every athlete I've had who's gone through a divorce has been fitter than they've ever been in their entire life. There is something about major relationship changes with athletes that very often is a time when they will double down on themselves mm-hmm. and training. Yeah. And it's a way for them to process um, because we all know when we're out there running and the effort isn't too hard, that there's a lot of time to let the mind yeah. wander and think and move through stuff. And I've definitely seen a lot of people reach a place of healing through getting some additional miles assigned yeah. while they're processing hard relationship stuff. And I think we just have to be really careful as athletes who are constantly seeking podiums and success to use that to tell ourselves that we're okay. Um, We at some point have to develop inside of ourselves the concept that we are okay without a run, without a ride, without a swim, without any of that. And I know through times of of emotional turmoil that a lot of people can kind of double down on exercise as this way to continue to say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. but at some, and that is a fix for a while, but at some point we all have to face the, we have to face our maker and realize that none of those things are actually needed for us to be okay. We're born. Okay. We will move forward. Okay. If our legs don't work, we're yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, I, the fittest, the fittest athletes ever get is when they're going through really tough, emotional relationship yeah. stuff as, as I've 
found to be true. And I try to just roll with it okay. and understand it's what the athlete needs right now. They need it for their mental health. Um, and that's fine. We can do that. I usually find that they don't necessarily race super great, sure. <laughs> but they usually get pretty darn yeah. fit because they're just wanting to put in the miles. Um, but that place you've got to go to when you're racing, oh, makes sense. you know, different people motivate in different ways. And depending on what the life event was, I think, you know, this, there's obviously a lot of different cases, but I've I've found with most of my athletes when race day comes and they've really got to put themselves on the line and they've got to be vulnerable and they have to really double down on themselves that sometimes those emotional hurts and traumas they've been dealing with will then come yeah. out. No, that, that makes <laughs> kind of, they'll be walking the last half of the marathon. And, and that's when you're like, yes, you are getting a divorce. <laughs> you know, like you're right. You, yes. For the last three months, you've been training very hard through it. And yes, it's sort yeah. of that moment of realization when they get to the really pointy end of trying to get the most out of themselves. That's when their brain is like, you're getting a divorce. Yeah. Well, you, um, it takes so much focus. Yeah. And I would imagine that your focus is just gone, you know? Yeah. And yeah. stuff. But yeah. So uh, you talk about, you know, uh, Iron Man and the amount of focus that you need in an Iron Man, let alone, you know, a, a five day, seven day event <laughs> um, through the wilderness of Fiji. Yeah. I know that's something that you've had to develop as uh, an athlete. Um, so talk to us, like what kind of, how do you develop that level of focus to be locked in yeah. for that long? Long, I know. Yeah. The the interesting dynamic between Ironman, which for me is like a 10 hour race versus um, Eco Challenge, which is a 10 day yeah. race is is a really cool dynamic. Um, so in Ironman, even though it's 10 hours, which people would think is a really long time, it's still an amount of time that you can pretty much totally control. You can, there's a lot more, you know, a four minute race. There's probably even a little bit more out of your control because yeah, things are going to happen so fast and you have to be so reactionary. Yeah. But with a 10 hour race, you can really put together a plan and you can rehearse that plan. Mm -hmm. You can practice your nutrition. You can practice your pacing. You yeah. can know your wattage. You can know the heart rate you're going to nail. You can have your setup on your bike, like everything just so. And Ironman at the pointy end of the sport is really about getting these perfect performances. Yeah. It's about execution to the nine, which is why triathletes get a bad rap for being super controlling. Well, that's what our sport breeds yeah. us to do. It breeds us to get out every single thing. Like even if our, the little nozzle on our bike tire tube is unscrewed, right? Like a triathlete will check that that's screwed on tight. Like every little mm -hmm. tiny detail is taken into account so that you can have this perfect execution of this perfect yeah. day. Um, adventure racing is the total opposite. It's literally running from disaster to disaster to disaster. It, there's no, you don't even entertain the idea of having perfection. Yeah. It's all about disaster planning and being ready for things to go wrong and how to manage things going wrong with three other people. So someone's always having a meltdown. Someone's always really tired. Someone's like pre-bonk or post-bonk pretty much the entire race. So it's really this, like, I think of like pig pen. It's like this rolling circus of a cyclone where something is kind of always not not right or yeah. not great. And then as the navigator, I was our team's navigator. So I've got 
my compass in my hand and my map in my hand 24 hours a day. <laughs> so there is a focus that is just required by the sport for the navigator to stay yeah. found every moment of every day. And I think that was in some, it was a very hard responsibility to have because obviously you don't want to get the team yeah. lost, but it, it took it to where I didn't have to worry about my focus because I knew where my oh, focus sure. was all the time. Whereas the boys could get more in their head and they could kind of think about life and what was going mm. on. I didn't have the luxury to do that at any point in time. You know, it's like, is that bend in the river the same degrees that my compasses showed me <laughs> the bend in the river was? And, yeah. you know, I'm looking around all the time going, okay, is that hill, yeah. this hill on the map? Like, am I found? Am I found? Am I found? Am I yeah. found? Um, so yeah, I think it was a very, it was a different sensation mm. for me. Um, and, and rewarding. I really liked that contrast of not having to be perfect yeah. all the time. And Ironman was five, you know, eight years for me of just how can I have the most perfect race, every sure. single race, execute like a boss. And this was way more free. It was like, ah, oh, we're going to mess up. Oh, we're yeah. messing up again. <laughs> oh, we're lost. Oh, we're found, yeah. you know? And that was hard coming, coming as an Ironman athlete, wanting things to go right all the time, created a lot of anxiety yeah. for me in the race of like, I don't want to get lost. I don't want to get lost. And the seasoned adventure racers are like, oh, you're going to get lost. Like that's part of the sport. It's not about getting, not getting lost. It's about knowing when yeah. you're lost and knowing how to get unlost. That's just part of the sport. Um, so to me, adventure racing is a lot more like life and an Ironman is a lot more like life lived unhealthy okay. <laughs> perfectionist yeah. mentality, you know, let's control everything we can yeah. control so that nothing bad ever happens to us. That's Ironman and adventure racing is everything bad is going to happen to us. How are we yeah. going to handle it? <laughs> but you did mention like you had one clear focus in the adventure race that helped you, yeah. you know, mentally stay in it. Um, yep. And it, I mean, if you relate that to life, it's kind of like, what's your main goal? in life i mean where are you striving to and then yeah there's going to be things that knock you off course but how do you get back on um so i, I love the analogy that adventure racing is like life and iron man's like unhealthy life <laughs> it is it's so true yeah. it's so true and i mean it's a less you know coming out of iron man and, in, and moving into adventure racing it's kind of awesome and freeing mm -hmm. And again, like what, you know, how we do one thing is how we mm. do everything. I, I truly believe that when we're in those times in our life, when we are really that Ironman time of my life was a really perfectionist time yeah. of life. And that extended to the rest of my life because how we do one thing is how we do everything. Yeah. yeah. No, I, um, uh, I encourage athletes, um, my, my philosophy for kind of like preparing, um, for a race and now I'm more of a. Uh, miler to 10k uh, yeah. racer but i we have a plan we rehearse the plan mostly visually because uh you don't Short. do mile races with your teammates and, and plan that you can't do that like you can parts of the iron man um, by yourself but it's a loose plan like it's i want to be in this position at this marker i don't care where i am in between but at 800 to go mm -hmm. i want to be in top four you know and then yes, i'm making my that. move at 200 to go and and it gives you a lot of leeway to yeah react like you said um but you have enough structure to keep your focus like you were on you know the compass 
um, you have, yep. okay, at 200, I need to be there and, and stuff. Yep. And I think that it's almost like checkpoints. Yeah, exactly. Like we raced from checkpoint to checkpoint in the race. And so it's like how you get from checkpoint to checkpoint in, in life or in sport, you have to have some freedom and flexibility for the in, the in-between and how you make it to yeah. that checkpoint. I also think that's where the magic mm. happens is that freedom between checkpoints. Yep. Um, because I think when we try to control the journey, like hyper control the journey, we lose the element of like surprise and intuition because there might be a move might be made or a, this might 100%. happen or that that you need to be flexible and creative with. And if you hyper control the path from checkpoint to checkpoint, oftentimes you'll lose out on that kind of like gut intuition, uh, magical mm. opportunity that you need to grab a hold of. You know, oh, nope, I'm on, I'm on this yeah. road. Like, oh, but you might need to get, there's a shortcut or, you, you know, you, you can't, you can't stick, stick the journey so hard. Yeah. I like that concept of checkpoints and I like how you set up race plans with your athletes to kind of use that mentality. I think that's a successful yeah. one. Um, you talk about how you're physically tough and obviously being, you know, adventure race, multi-day racing, Ironman athlete. Uh, and I know you, you did one year, a crazy amount of races in a year. Uh, you're just like physically don't get injured often. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what kind of recovery from a physical standpoint do you do in between races, in between uh, workouts and stuff? Yeah, I love it. I love this question because I'm such a big fan of recovery. And like I said earlier in, in this podcast, um, I've never been great with routine, which is, I think, really yeah. helped me out in the sense of I'm not afraid of rest days. Um, but I usually only take them when I feel unmotivated. Okay. <laughs> so I run a lot more based on energy because I think the first, like the first reason that I have almost never gotten injured, there have been a few little things, but through all of whatever, now we're looking at 15 years of endurance mm -hmm. racing. I've trained for multiple years at over 30 hours a week wow. of training injury free came from when I start to feel pretty worn down emotionally and physically. I just take a rest. I just don't train. I just throw everything that's on the schedule off the schedule. I call coach and I call yeah. uncle and I rest um, and I sleep. So I think that that first, what I've seen a lot of athletes do is they get really hyper-focused into the schedule, even though they know they're exhausted yeah. and they know they've, they're getting up and over that hump of like, that they can come back from, but the schedule yeah. says <laughs> I've got to X, Y, Z. And like, even sometimes when their coach will be like, Oh, don't do it. They'll still be like, but it's on the schedule. And I'll be like, yeah, but I wrote yeah. the schedule. So if I'm telling you not to do it, like, like the schedule doesn't have more power than I, I wrote yeah. the schedule, you know, it's a guideline. Um, so I was never afraid to take an unplanned rest day. And I think that was really important to any niggle that I got, anything that was like feeling off or I was just getting too far over. I've got like yeah. an ankle that sometimes gets janky. And the minute it would start acting up, instead of pushing through, I always use that ankle as a litmus test for when I needed to rest. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, ankle's getting janky. We need a rest day. So I would say like unstructured rest days were my number one recovery modality. Okay. <laughs> Two is sleep. When I trained 30 hours a week, I consistently got 10 hours of sleep a night. Wow. Like it was just mandatory. Um, and sleeping, like knowing when 
knowing and accepting your own personal sleep cycle. So, you know, a lot of great athletes tend to be morning people. They tend to be able to get up early in the morning and I'm not, I'm a night owl. And when I really started seeing the benefits from my sleep started coming from when I just accepted the fact that I was a night owl and I was probably going to be up until midnight or 1am, but I was still going to get my 10 hours and I was still going to get in all my training. Once that cycle started, um, actually my bedtime started creeping backwards. Like once I embraced, okay, you can go to midnight every night. If you want to just sleep till 10, then it was like, Oh, 11 o'clock. I was tired. Oh, 10 o'clock. I was tired. It started kind of backing up when I was like, go to bed whenever. Um, but once I started getting 10 hours on my personal natural sleep cycle, and that was like waking up without an alarm, going to bed when I'm tired. And I, you know, you're tired when you first feel cold at night, when you're like watching TV and binging Netflix and you're like, where's the blanket? That's time Uh, to go to bed. That was what I, that was my key. Like that first sensation of, Oh, I'm cold. Got it. Where's the blanket? Your body is literally dropping its core body temp and that's because it wants to go to sleep. So then you go to sleep, you shut off the Netflix and go, then you'll wake up eight to 10 hours without an alarm. So that's what I started doing. So sleep was like that second thing. Also a great litmus test for knowing how recovered I was because if I was having night sweats or I was sleeping really hot, that was usually one of the first questions when I was training a lot and living Mm -hmm. with my coach. Um, I'd wake up in the morning and he would be like, night sweats. Did you sleep hot? Did you sleep cold? Like, where were you at? Because we could always gauge how much of a load was building up in my body based on kind of my core body temp during the night. Um, so monitoring that was really important. So if you were, if you were having night sweats, like, you know, you're not cooling down far enough. Was that, that's a sign of not recovering. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's really a core body temp game when you're training 30 hours a week, it's getting that Mm -hmm. core body temp down. So when it stops and it'll do it naturally at night, but when it stops doing that and it's still revving through the night and you're starting to sleep hot or get night sweats, then, you know, you're building a bit, you're about to blow, you're building too much of a, um, of a fatigue load. So yeah, we would look at that. And then I would say the third thing that I embraced a ton was Normatech pants. Normatech boots. Those were when I trained 30 hours a week, I would say I was in them at least an hour a night, if not two. And there were some, when we were getting to that edge where we were asking about the body sweats, we were kind of on that fine line. And that's, you know, maybe after having trained, maybe I would have done like a 30 hour week and a 30 hour week and a 35 hour week. And so I had a huge load. Um, Sometimes I would sleep in them at night and put them on a lower setting and let them go all night, just knowing it was going to continue to help flush my system. Um, So I I think those were sort of the three main modalities. Now, did we do everything else we could? Yes. Like I, at my height, you know, I'd had acupuncture once a week. I had a massage once a week. Um, I lived with my I sticked and foam rolled, but I was very careful. Actually, I think people can over stick and over foam roll. So I tried not to do that too ad infinitum. Um, uh, and then what, what would you say is like the dangers of over sticking? Uh, what I found was when things, when I had already created a lot of muscle damage, I felt like getting on my foam roller and being really aggressive was not contributing to wellness. Yeah. It was just like breaking me down more when what my body really needed was like needed its core body temperature to go down and it needed to flush. Like I needed my blood to run through its flushing systems as many times as I could get it to. So I found like more of the passive recovery 
methods. I almost never did deep tissue massages wow. ever. I always did flushing massages because I just, I, I always felt like my body had everything it needed to heal. If it could just keep its blood flowing yeah. and I could stay hydrated and, and it could keep to run its own recovery system. So I felt like most of my recovery modalities were really helping my body do its normal job of flushing out and repairing things rather than like the extreme sticking or foam rolling and the deep tissue and really getting in and like grinding on something that was already in a place of trauma. I was more like, let it be, mm -hmm. give it a lot of DLC, love on it. Like like flush it, give it a lot yeah. of water, let it heal itself. Um, and that worked really well for me. Yeah, no, I, I agree a lot with that philosophy. I, I do have like a massage gun that I, I'll work. Um, me and too. Stuff. It's but <laughs> even like after a hard interval workout or strength stuff, I tend not even do like a lot of strenuous static stretching because you're just like you, you ripped your muscles it just doesn't make sense for me to try to pull them apart i think stretching is important yes. but i do it later in the day than once they've had a chance to kind of come back um together so i i have no scientific evidence that that's the right thing to do it's just how it makes sense to me based on the physiology of what's happening. Yeah. My other thing that I would do with no scientific evidence is because I always craved it. And I figured if I was craving, I was, I would do it. Everyone was always into ice baths and I take hot baths okay. almost after almost every big session, I crawl in a hot bath. And I mean, no one's going to tell you that that's the right yeah. thing to do again. Like, blood flow, like blood flow is a oh, thing yeah. and relaxation is a thing and quieting down your parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous yeah. system after you've been training really hard and you've been like lit up and focused on fire and mojo. I feel like calming the nervous system was always important for me. And every time I got in an ice bath, I was just like, my parasympathetic nervous system would go crazy. And I would like, it's a jolting yeah. experience to be in an ice bath. So I always gravitated to a hot bath after all my training sessions. And I tell you, like, it never really served me wrong. Yeah. I can't, I can't say it felt good. I would relax. I would get blood flow. And then I'd have to work my way into cooling down my core body temp at, at some point. Yeah. But yeah, that no. I, I'm sure there are plenty of studies that tell you like not to get in a warm <laughs> bath after big training sessions, but man, it always worked for me. You know, I, I haven't done the research on hot baths, but what you're saying, I can relate to um, some of my other interviews on this podcast. One being uh, with Justin Rothling chauffeur. He's a, a former NHL coach and, and stuff. And, um, I'll have a link to the the show in the show notes here, but um, he talked about parasympathetic sympathetic system, and it just triggered this thought when you said like you're getting in like you you work out, you're kind of in that fight or flight mode, you know, and then you jump into an ice bath and you're still there. And his totally. whole not whole philosophy, but part of his philosophy is you're in this fight or flight mode in their workout, you need to activate the, uh, the sympathetic system. That's the relaxation. I think <laughs> I so. might be saying this wrong, <laughs> but the relaxation mode, uh, which sounds like that's what you're kind yes. of doing in the hot bath is you're helping yes. your body to just 
relax and get out of the way of it re you know healing itself recovering um, that's right you know and then in another episode i talked to dr tom clifford who has done a ton of research on tart cherry juice and yes we were talking about the difference between tart cherry juice as an anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. versus like ibuprofen or tylenol something over the counter and um because I think there's a misconception that if you take tart cherry juice then you're not going to get muscle gains or whatever, but because there are studies that show Tylenol or ibuprofen prevent that. But he was saying that um, tart cherries work in a different way that actually aid in your body's natural recovery system rather than going to the source and like pounding out the inflammation and stuff. So it's, it's interesting. You'll have to listen to that one too, but yeah, um, I will for sure. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> I I think we're we're about running out of time here, but um I have a couple a couple last questions for you uh, that are like you can answer in 60 seconds uh, or less. So Ooh, fun. Um first one is if you had one recovery tool um besides sleeping that that's the only tool you could take with you for the rest of your life. Um, or in in past life, uh, what would that? My Normatec boots, like times a thousand. Those things are fantastic. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah, our school had some of those and I can attest, they feel great. They're, yeah. When you're training 20, 30 hours a week, those things are just yeah. heaven <laughs> and they work. They just yeah. work. Um, okay. This one might be hard to answer in 60 seconds, but you're you have a passion for doing hard things. Why? Um, I feel like my why has changed through the years. I think for a long time, my why was that if I, if I accomplished these really, really hard things, people who valued that would accept Mm. me more. Um, and I got that programming from a, like a young age that doing really hard things was really cool and really awesome. And so I think for a long time, I ran around and did hard things because I wanted acceptance from people who sure. valued that. Not really that way anymore. Now, I don't really even think of the hard things I'm doing as hard anymore, as long as they're adventurous and exploratory yeah. and fun. Um, and so I don't like... I don't see those things as hard or requiring a lot of toughness. I see them as more going after what lights me up mm. and giving thanks and gratitude for the body and mindset that I've been yeah. given because I came here with a Ferrari. Like I got so lucky. I literally was gifted a Ferrari yeah. body. And so it's less thinking that I'm doing hard things to my body. And it's more thinking like, oh yeah, my body was kind of made to do this. And the reason it was to do it is because my soul yearns mm. for these amazing experiences. Yeah. Um, and so that doesn't feel hard anymore. It just looks hard to other people because it's not in alignment with what they're putting here to do in the body that they've been given necessarily nice um and the last question uh what is your biggest asset to your success interesting gosh my biggest asset to my success has been oh this is like that's a tough question you got me okay 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 i got it all right I'm going to roll with this. I would say my biggest asset to success is that thing I have inside of me that someone would call self-acceptance, like acceptance of just what is, that what is right now is okay. 
tired, okay, excited, okay. Um, I think that the times when I've really been able to double down on that and let go of the structure, let go of the routine and just flow with what actually is right yeah. now and capitalize on it, that's been my biggest asset. Awesome. That I think is so underrated in our society, self-acceptance. So I'm so glad you yeah. said that. I'm so glad that you found that in yourself because um, yeah. man, like we all have everything we need to be yeah. successful with what we're meant to do. Like we literally were born with it. We have everything we need. It's really just sloughing off the stuff that's getting yeah. in the way. Uh, I think when I started to realize that, like, oh my gosh, I'm meant to explore. Huh? Who knew? Oh my gosh, I'm meant to explore. Okay, let's yeah. go explore. I need to be any more than that. I have everything I need to do that. I have the resources. I have the, the smarts. Mm -hmm. I have the brains. I have the body. It's all there. But once I accepted that, I'm allowed to go do that. That's okay. It just is what yeah. it is. And what is what your truth is and what you're here to do and who you're here to help, the more you can slough off everything that's competing with that, the quicker you're going to be able to, to get to work in yeah. service of what you've come here to do. Yeah. I, I think um, you mentioned in your passion for hard things that you kind of started your why started trying to prove other people and then now it's your your passion your fun i don't think that's the case for everybody i think a lot of people start with their i do this to impress other people and then they realize they don't actually like it and yeah yeah <laughs> exactly that's my message to you um there are so many fun things in the world i've had so i've said so many people come to me and go oh i'd love to do what you do but i hate running and i'm like go rock climbing like go whitewater yeah. rafting learn to do yoga. Like there are <laughs> exactly. so many fun things yeah. to do with your physical body. Like if you don't like running, please, please don't yeah. run. If you're not into heights, please don't rock climb. <laughs> like there are so many, if you love the yoga mat, please spend more time yeah. on it. Like no judgment, find your thing. hundred percent. Yeah. But if you yeah. take this advice and you quit your sport, uh, don't give your coach my number. Um, <laughs> you can give them yeah. mine. Give them mine. Uh, have them reach out to Sonia. Actually, if you, if you use this advice to quit your sport, your coach will be stoked because <laughs> he's tired of dealing yeah. with you not happy in the sport anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, um, where where do you want people to reach out to you, and uh, wh what are you working on these days that um, somebody might want to reach out to you about? Yeah. Um, so I, I host a podcast called Tales of Toughness, where I interview other eco challenge world's toughest race racers, and also some staff and um, gosh, like cameramen and fun yeah. people. And we talk about the race and everything they learned about themselves through the race. We tell all the untold stories. So that's really fun. If you want to hear more stories and, and exciting yeah. journeys, um, if something I said today resonates, or you have a question, or you're interested in getting um, into contact with me, you can go to my website, which is gosonia.com, S-G-O-S-O-N-J-A. And I'm on Instagram at gosonia as well. And I love responding to people. So if something, one of you out there heard something that you thought, gosh, I got to get in touch with this girl, get in touch with this girl and let's have a conversation. I love, I love doing that. Um, so yeah, that's where people can awesome. find me. Yeah. And uh, a quick testimonial about your podcast. It's been great. And um, especially since I've watched the, the, you know, Amazon, the show, show, it does and help. Then <laughs> get into here, like uh, the camera man's perspective. Cause my wife and I were watching that and we're like, 
the cameraman have to do all this too? Like how in the world? <laughs> and then you listen to my podcast yeah. and you find out yeah. how in the world. So if you have those types of questions, go listen to our podcast, Tales of Toughness. And um, if you want to have Sonia speak at something that you have going on, um, reach out to her. She'll get back to you. Um, great person to work with. So I'm so glad you're on my show, um, Sonia. And I wish you nothing but the best in your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. We had such a great conversation today. I can't wait to hear it live when it's when it's all posted. We'll do. And I'll send you all the stuff. <laughs> All right, episode's over. If you found value in this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already yet subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any important topics in the coming week. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please send them my way. I am most responsive on Instagram. That's at jcheese, J-A-E, cheese, like the food, or email me directly at jace, J-A-S-E, at scienceofsportsrecovery.com. Talk soon.